0: 2 Peter, chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who, through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance, through the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord. Amen. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness but whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ.
1: The last two weeks of our five-week series will be the first two weeks of... Advent And Advent is a season of waiting, of looking forward to the coming of Christ. Looking forward to his first coming at Christmas, but also his second coming. And chapter 3 of 2 Peter is all about the return of Christ. Another theme of the letter is Christian growth. And so following our Vision Sundays, as we work on our... Uh, personal discipleship plans. This will be a good letter to spend some time in, especially chapter one. And you'll see in the passage this morning a number of echoes of John 15, and Jesus called to remain in the vine if we want to bear fruit. Two Peter is, as Jack said, the last recorded writing of the Apostle Peter. He says in chapter one fourteen. Just flick over the page to that. Chapter one fourteen. I know that I will soon put it aside, that is, his body, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. He knows that his death is imminent, and we know that Peter died, was killed under at, at the hand of the emperor Nero, and Nero himself died in AD 68, so this letter is probably written early to mid-60s, uh, before Peter's death. This is his last letter, writing to the church. And so we can ask, what does the young Christian church in those early decades, what do they need to know from their dying apostle? Some new teaching, some detail that he's not shared yet, some extra key that's going to keep them going? Well, what does Peter say? Chapter 1, verse 12. So I will always remind you of these things even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. Verse 13, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body. Verse 15, I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you'll always be able to remember these things. It seems Peter doesn't have anything particularly new to share with the church. He just wants to remind them, to make sure that they remember the key truths of the gospel Have a look over the page to chapter 3. It says a similar thing. 3 verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. This is Peter's final reminder to the church. And at the heart of what he wants his readers and us to remember, we'll have a look right at the end of the book. Final two verses, 3, 17 and 18. Therefore, dear friends... Since you've been forewarned, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Peter's concerned in this letter about the presence of false teachers. He addresses them directly in chapter 2, but they're in the background throughout the letter. It seems that they are denying the return of Christ. They're rejecting God's authority and as a result they're just living for the moment. They're following their own sinful desires and leading others into greed and depravity. So Peter says, be on your guard so that you're not carried away and fall from your secure position. Peter's concerned for his readers that they remain secure and stable in their faith. And so he encourages us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour. You see, the way to be stable and secure, as we saw demonstrated in the kids' book, is not by trying to stand still and withstand all the pressures to knock us over, but rather to keep moving forwards. The way to be stable on a bike is forward momentum. And so it is in the Christian life. If we want to be secure in our faith, we need to keep moving forward, keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And that is the focus of this opening section of Peter's letter. It's all about Christian growth, all about making every effort to grow. So we're going to look at it under three headings, the reason for our growth, sorry, the reason for our efforts, the focus of our efforts, and the results of our efforts. The reason, the focus, the results. Let me just show you the structure of this opening section, verses 1 to 11. Verse 5 is the key verse. Verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, knowledge, self-control, and so on. That's the central command. And then look at verse 8. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, there'll they'll be good results. Now, as I've said before, when you're reading the epistles in the New Testament, it's particularly important to pay attention to the connecting words. That'll give you the, the logic of the argument, that the flow of what the author's saying. So words like therefore and so that and because. Pay attention to those. They'll give you the interior logic. And so here, we have the central command, make every effort. But verse 5 begins, for this very reason... In other words, make every effort because of what I've just told you in verses 1 to 4. Verses 1 to 4 give us the reason for our efforts. Then verses 5 to 7 give us the focus of our effort. What are we to make effort to do to grow in Christ-like qualities? And then verse 8, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, well, then there'll be good results. You'll be effective, productive, you'll confirm your calling and election, and more. So verse 8 to 11 tell us the results. Okay, let's dive in then, and the first point, verses 1 to 4, the reason for our effort. The reason is because what you've been given is everything you need. What you've already been given is everything you need. Can you spot in these opening verses the three things that Peter says We've been given. Have a look down. Verse 1, he tells us, you've received a faith as precious as the apostles. Verse 3, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. And verse 4, he has given us his very great and precious promises. We've been given an extraordinary privilege Extraordinary provision, extraordinary promises. So, verse 1, Peter describes himself as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's been commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself. He has the authority of Christ as he writes these things. And he says he's writing to people who, through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Now, that is remarkable. Peter is writing to Christians who never met Jesus for themselves and yet he says they've received the faith as precious as his own. Simon Peter, who was personally called by Jesus to be a disciple, commissioned by Jesus to be an apostle. Peter, who was there in the boat when Jesus calmed the storm, who saw the miracles, who was there at the cross, who saw the empty tomb, who met the risen Jesus, who preached to the crowds on the day of Pentecost and he says that his readers including us have received a faith that is literally in equal in value as precious as his own. Now I think he can say that because the value of our faith comes from the content of our faith. Christian faith is faith in Jesus who Peter describes here as our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Four titles for the one person. He's Jesus, the first century carpenter from Nazareth, who's none other than the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Saviour King, who is God himself in human flesh, our Saviour, who's cleansed us from our sins, as he says in verse 9. Our faith is precious because... He is precious. And whether you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years, you have an equal standing with the apostles, a faith as precious as theirs. You see, there's no class structure in the Christian community. There are no second-class Christians. There are no spiritual elites. If we trust in Jesus, we have a faith of equal value to the apostles. That's an extraordinary privilege. And it flows into the extraordinary provision. Verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. It's quite a long sentence, isn't it? Do you you know, actually, this whole section in the original is one sentence, 1 to 11. Peter is saying here, we've been given everything we need for a godly life. We already have it, everything we need. And we have it... What does he say? Through our knowledge of him. Everything we need for living a godly life is found. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. Can you see here echoes to John 15? Jesus describes himself as divine, the, the source of life, and says if we remain in him as he remains in us, then we'll bear much fruit. See, everything we need for living a godly life, a a fruitful life, is found in Jesus. There's no secret knowledge we need to discover. There's no extra power source we need to tap into. Jesus is everything we need. A godly life is a life like God, a life like Jesus. It's the life we're to make every effort to grow into. A life of goodness, self-control, perseverance, love. And the reason that we can make that progress is because of our knowledge of Jesus, because of our relationship with Jesus. You know, you always become like the people you spend time with. You You always become like the people you love and admire. So remain in Jesus. Press into your relationship with him. Know him more clearly. Love him more dearly. And you'll live a godly life. The third thing we've been given is in verse 4. His very great and precious promises. Let's look at verse 4 again. Through these, his glory and goodness, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. It's an even longer sentence. Now I've struggled with this one. Trying to understand the so that in the middle of that sentence. How is it that having God's promises means that we can participate in the divine nature? And what does that even mean? Now, I don't know if this is all that Peter was saying, but I think the promises he has in mind are the promises specifically about us participating in the divine nature and escaping the corruption of the world. What does it mean that we participate in the divine nature? It doesn't mean that we become God or kind of get absorbed into the great divine energy of the universe. It means, I think, that we share in his nature. We share his character. We share something of his life. And primarily, Peter here is talking about the future, when Jesus returns. We're told in 1 John 3, what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. And Paul says in Romans 8 that God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's God's purpose. That's God's promise. That you and I will one day be just like Jesus, glorified. We'll share in the glory of God. C.S. Lewis, I've got a quote, I think, on the screen, in The Weight of Glory says this, we need to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship. Wow, he's talking about you and me. No wonder, Peter says, this is a very great and precious promise. One day we will be glorified. May, just like Jesus, participate in the divine nature. We'll escape the world's corruption, once and for all set free from sin and all its devastating effects. What a wonderful promise. And we have the down payment of that promised future even now through the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. I picked up this little book this week by Peter Jensen, What Christians Believe." kind of setting out some of the core truths that we believe. And interestingly, he starts his book at the end, the future, eternity. He says this, of this we may be sure, the possession of hope, the longing for a goal, is one of the most powerful stimulants to human action. The possession of hope, the longing for a goal, it's one of the most powerful stimulants to human action. Now, most of the people in our culture today don't have much, if any, hope. Certainly no clear vision for the future. Certainly not any certainty about what the future holds. And as a result, there's a crisis of meaning and purpose, isn't there? Not so the Christian. We know where we're heading. We have a sure and certain hope because of the promise of our gods. Peter Jensen goes on, our knowledge of God's purposes shapes the way of life that we adopt. Our goals, our values, our behavior will conform to the goal that... And he says, central to that future purpose of God is Jesus. He is what humanity, we ourselves, are intended to be. He is what we will become. So Peter says, for this very reason... Make every effort. You know where you're heading. You have God's purpose and promise for your life. Now make every effort to bring your life in line. Secondly, the focus of our effort. Verses 5 to 7 tell us the focus of our effort is Christ-likeness. Peter lists here seven or eight qualities, virtues, seven aspects of Christ's character. Although they're in a list, I don't think we're meant to see them as sequential, as if I need to get my knowledge sorted before I move on and address the area of self-control. There's not an order to the list. It, It may be he's particularly got the errors of the false teachers in mind, but we're to make every effort to grow in these seven things. We're to... Work hard, to be diligent, to exert ourselves, to work up a spiritual sweat. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that call to hard work, to make efforts, alarm bells go off. You know, I have a knee jerk reaction to anything that sounds like a denial of grace. But can you see that it's God's grace that enables and empowers our efforts? Grace is the engine for our efforts. For this very reason. Because of God's grace, what he's given you in Christ. Everything you need, make every effort to grow. A writer called Alan Chappell says in his book True Devotion that the Christian gospel is not like the rocket which launches a satellite and then falls away. The Christian gospel doesn't just get us launched to be left behind. No, the gospel is the basis for the whole Christian life. As we've said before, that the gospel isn't just the ABC a, 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 of the Christian life. It's the A to Z. The gospel of grace is the engine that empowers a life of effort to grow. So make every effort. Build up a spiritual sweat, always relying on his grace. As Paul says in... Philippians, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So you work out your salvation, make every effort to grow knowing that God is working in you to enable your will and your action in line with his purpose. So let's work work our way through this list of virtues Starts with faith. That's the starting point for the Christian who wants to become like the one they believe in. And so faith leads automatically to goodness. <laughs> uh, apparently, philosophers in the first century did a lot of debating about what is goodness, what makes the good life. And Peter's answer is not particularly philosophical it's Jesus. In Acts chapter 10, Peter's teaching and he says, You know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how he went around doing good. And healing all who were under the power of the devil. Because God was with him. Isn't that a beautiful description of Jesus? He went around doing good. So make every effort to grow in Christ-like goodness. Secondly, knowledge. You already know Jesus. Now make every effort to grow in knowledge of the one you know. It's like marriage, isn't it? On your wedding day, you know your spouse, but your married life is now, well, part of the joy of that is getting to know your spouse better and better. It's the same person, but you're getting to know them more deeply, more fully. So with Jesus, make every effort to grow in your knowledge. Of him. Thirdly, self-control. Self-control, that's not a virtue particularly valued in our culture, is it? Our culture that's all about free expression, follow your desires, certainly not control yourself, we're to give free expression to ourselves. The false teachers in Peter's day were characterized by following the corrupt desires of the flesh. But the healthy Christian knows that the future God has promised is desires. And so they're making every effort to to bring their desires under control in line with God's will. Perseverance or steadfastness, this is the endurance of the long-distance runner, not giving up, keeping going through the trials and hardships they face. The healthy Christian has their eyes on the finish line, the Lord Jesus there waiting to receive them, And so they're making every effort to run with perseverance the race marked out before them. Godliness, similar to goodness. Godliness, as I said, is Christ-likeness. The healthy Christian is asking that question, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do if he was me facing this situation? What would he do with this ethical dilemma at work? How would he respond to this difficult family member? as we get to know Jesus better, we'll grow in godliness uh, of life. Mutual affection, literally it's the word Philadelphia, means love for the brothers. The healthy Christians making every effort to grow in love and kindness for their brothers and sisters in the church. And finally, love. Agape love. Christ-like love. Not just love for members of the Christian family, but love for anyone, everyone. Now, no Christian, of course, can ever claim to have attained these qualities fully, to have arrived as the model Christian. This side of eternity will never reach perfection, but we are to make progress. As Peter says in verse 8, we're to possess these qualities in increasing measure. Alan Chappell again says, Christian growth doesn't mean starting with very little and then adding more. Rather, it's about progressively taking hold of what we already have. Possessing what we possess. Now, as we said when looking at John 15, there'll be seasons of life for all of us of relative fruitlessness. Winter seasons. Seasons in which God is pruning us. Progress in the Christian life is, is not a linear upward trajectory. It's more like this, isn't it? Three steps forward, one step back, kind of jiggity jaggity And one of the features of Christian maturity is actually a growing consciousness of our weakness and failings, how far we fall short. So we must never forget that through Christ we are cleansed of our past sins. We don't need to despair. That the normal Christian life is one of trying and failing and coming daily back to the cross for fresh cleansing and forgiveness. We'll never graduate from grace. There'll never be a day where we don't need the forgiving, transforming, empowering grace of God's. We mustn't let our ongoing sin discourage us and cause us to give up. Rather, it should drive us more deeply into God's grace, to be energized afresh, to continue striving for godliness. So the reason for our efforts, we've already been given everything we need. the focus of our effort, growth in Christ' likeness. Finally, the results of our efforts. Peter uses four main pictures in these final verses to describe the results. Of our effort. We'll look at them quickly. Firstly, he talks about being fruitful. Verse 8, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive, literally unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says it's possible to know Jesus and yet to be unproductive, unfruitful in that knowledge, to be lazy and passive, not making any progress. If you want to be fruitful, if you want if you want to bear fruit for God's glory, live a life of purpose and value, then make every effort to grow in Christ-like character. Heed his words, obey his commands, remain in his love. Secondly, the second result of our effort is that will demonstrate our clear-sightedness. Verse 9. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. Now, it's not that making every effort gives you clear sight, but that our effort demonstrates that we have a clear sight. That we're seeing things clearly. So imagine you want to check your spiritual eye. Are you seeing clearly? Are you thinking clearly? How are you going to check those things? Well, Peter says, Look at your life. Are you growing in goodness, knowledge of the Lord? Is there a growing self control? Are you persevering through trials? Are you godly? Not perfect, but making progress. Are you demonstrating love? If those things are present and increasing in your life, then your eyesight's fine. Your memory's working well. The third uh, result of our effort is we'll confirm our salvation. We'll be assured in our salvation. Look at verse 10. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Again, it's not that our effort earns our salvation, but it confirms our salvation. It demonstrates that our faith is genuine. Again, there are echoes here to John 15, aren't there? Jesus says there, if you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love. It's not that Jesus' love changes, but our awareness of it, our appreciation of his love grows as we walk in obedience to his commands. So here, our calling and election are entirely of God's grace. But our assurance of our calling, our assurance of our salvation grows as we make every effort and demonstrate these Christ-like qualities more and more. Finally, the final result of our effort is we'll be richly welcomed. Verse 11, And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. As I said, this is one long sentence. Jesus is there at the beginning, calling us to himself, giving us a precious faith. And Jesus is there at the end cheering us on, waiting to welcome us home. Again, it's not that our effort earns a place in his kingdom, but how we live will affect the welcome we receive. Don't you want to be richly welcomed? Not sneaking in by the back door, not scraping in shamefaced. Don't you want to hear Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Come and share in your master's happiness. So the reason for our efforts, we've been given everything we need. We have knowledge of Jesus. We have set before us his great precious promises for the future. Therefore, make every effort to grow more like the one you believe in, more like the one you will one day be conformed to and the results of our efforts. Let's pray, shall we? Loving Father, we pray that you would write these truths on our hearts and in our minds We pray, please fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, the one who's gone before us. Set our hearts on him. Please kick-start the engine of grace in our lives and stir us up that we would make every effort to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray
0: for our good and for his glory. Amen.